and have a house to live in, how are they going to go to outpatient every day? And people, people literally walking to a door in tears saying, I need to get off the street. And they're being turned away. But it fills you with rage. The problem is this isn't just some abstract thing. These are real individual people and they matter and their lives matter. And they're beautiful and talented and gifted and they have so much to offer the world and nobody will give them a chance even when they're saying I want help can you please help me in any way and doors being shut on them for me that is just an incredibly difficult thing to handle welcome to health professionals in recovery a podcast for healthcare practitioners interested in substance use disorder harm reduction and recovery from addiction Our hope is to provide education and support for those struggling in silence, recovering, and those who care for patients who suffer with substance use disorder. For more resources, please visit our website at www.healthprosandrecovery.com or follow us on Twitter at HPIR Podcast. And now, the hosts of Health Professionals in Recovery, Sean Fogler and Bill Kinkle. Welcome to Health Professionals in Recovery. My name is Sean Fogler. And I'm Bill Kinkle. And uh, we're excited to have a new episode. It's been a while, and a lot has changed. Wouldn't you say so, Bill? Yeah, I would say a couple things are maybe a little bit different than they were before. That's for sure. Right. Um, So, you know, we were doing some brainstorming about today's episode, and there really is so much to talk about. um, But we thought we could start with, you know, addressing the overdose crisis during a pandemic which is um, which is a monumental challenge and really difficult from many different angles. Um, and it's really, you know, this pandemic has exposed so much about, you know, what's wrong with our systems of care, really every level of care um, and every system within our society. Many of these, you know, issues um, we've known for a long, long time. And, uh, and now they've really been exposed in a very big way. And I know Bill does a lot of outreach work um, and is seeing it on the front lines, which is extraordinarily challenging. Um, with my advocacy work, I'm seeing it as well. Um, and it's really elevated our work in a big way, but also it's taken a bit of a toll on us too, wouldn't you say, Bill? Yeah, for sure. I mean, we've all known for for years that people were experiencing homelessness, people who use drugs, you know, oftentimes those are the same population. But by and large, we like to forget about those folks. Um, we don't really like to provide services to them. And what services we do provide, we, we make the barriers so difficult that it's almost impossible for them to get basic needs. But COVID has just shined a bright light on all those failing systems Uh, whereas you know before people they could at least access uh, a water supply you know or restrooms it would be difficult but they could at least get that Uh, but now just basic needs for survival are almost impossible for this population to find Uh, and even with all you know all the publicity and all the funding and our nation shutting down and all the resources that have been devoted to fighting COVID, um, it seems like even less resources are being given to the population who's the most vulnerable right now. Uh, and just, I mean, frankly, it's disgusting to see. Yeah. 
I um, the one thing that really concerns me, like as much as it's shined the light and it's elevated our work and its importance, the one thing that concerns me is that you know these vulnerable populations get forgotten in all of this because our time, energy, resources are going to you know people that people of privilege, <laughs> like people that have always done well that um, have support networks and have a home and um, have all the things that the populations that we deal with don't have. Um, and they're being supported much more than than the people that we serve. Um, and that's really the opposite of what, of what needs to happen, I think. Yeah, for um, sure. Of where, of where we're at. So, you know, you see a lot of funding opportunities um, towards nonprofits and community, community-based organizations and um, people like the, the organization you work with, Bill, um, that, you know, uh, prescribes medication-assisted treatment and uh, manages substance use disorders. But it's pretty small. And, um, you know, one thing that stood out to me is the Small Business Association was giving loans out, and many of them were really large to, you know, for-profit companies on a very large scale. Um, and, and I'm kind of like... In the back of my mind, actually not in the back of my mind, in the front of my mind, I'm thinking, well, what about us? Like, what about people that use drugs? What about people that are homeless? What about people that are involved with the criminal justice system? Um, you know, what about them? What about the most marginalized people in our society? And the interesting thing is that um, people of privilege are starting to become marginalized. Um, and it's very interesting to see those reactions, um, especially some of my old colleagues who aren't working in large tertiary medical centers um, that have worked in small private practices and suddenly they're shut down and they're out of work and they're not making money. And to hear that, and I understand it's hard for them now, um, but they've had it so good for so long. And I mean, I hate to say this, but I don't really feel sorry for them um, because so many are suffering. I mean, we're all suffering to some degree, but I think the populations that like I'm advocating for and that you're working with face to face every day, um, they are, I mean, they're walking the line, you know, they're, they're one small step, um, from non-existent, you know, not being, not being around, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I think I've just been so incredibly busy through all this that I haven't even had time to to really take notice of, you know, like you were talking about, you know, you know, physicians in private practice and all these different things who are, you know, losing their jobs and losing their practices and other folks. I just, it's so completely off my radar. I mean, I don't even really know what's going on with the news, honestly. I mean, I rely on my wife to, to kind of fill me in because it's just, it's exhausting. Like I literally spend all day um, with people who, like I said, struggle to find water. And, and I mean, for them, it's just confusing uh, because they're not really aware of current events. They know that there's this corona thing, uh, but they really don't understand the scale. You know, all they know is everything, you know, all the resources that were available and pretty much sustained their lives. All of a sudden, one day they were gone with no notice and they had no idea how to, how to deal with that. And so I don't, yeah, it's just so far off my radar. I mean that being said, uh, you know I don't 
I don't know that I would. I certainly have the urge inside, you know, being around, you know, being with the homeless population and these folks who literally have nothing. Um, you know, I certainly have the urge to say, I don't really feel sorry for people that just lost everything. Um, but I don't feel that way. I don't, it's kind of like two wrongs don't make a right. You know, I wouldn't wish that on anybody. Um, and, you know, if you're, you know, anybody who loses their livelihood in a flash, I mean, it's catastrophic. Um, but like I said, I certainly understand the urge because, you know, being around people that don't have anything, it, it's really hard to fight the, you know, to, I have to fight that urge regularly of being pissed off at the wealthier, pissed off, um, you know, but, you know, being rich and being wealthy, like, that's pretty relative, you know, I mean, the people that I'm with every day, they look at me and think that, you know what I mean, I'm rich and haven't made, and that's very far from the truth, um, so, I mean, it's, it really is, it's just very relative. You're right, it's, it's been, it's just really tough to come up for air and all this. I think that's what's good about this right now is because you're making me think of things that I haven't really thought about because I've been drowning in this for, you know, for weeks now. I'm trying to navigate, you know, all the broken systems that now that are even further broken and on top of keeping my friends alive um, and helping them through all this. And in the midst of, you know, we were still you know, we were up to our necks with the overdose crisis prior to this starting, and we really couldn't get ahead with that of people overdosing, and now we throw in this whole idea of, well, now you have to socially distance yourself, and so we've taken a population that for for years we've told them, don't be distant from each other, stay close, don't use alone, because it's unsafe, and now we've said, you can't be around anyone, and a lot of the folks that I'm around, I mean, they lived, um, you know, in, in encampments and in communities that are now being, uh, you know, raided and people are being evicted from these these encampments and then further spaced apart. And so their risk of death is even higher. And even if they survive, you know, the opioid crisis and the overdose crisis, now they're at risk for COVID. And a lot of these folks are immunosuppressed. They don't have the best immune systems are not very healthy and you know in terms of nutrition and things like that so they're at high risk and yeah it just sucks I think that's the, the best way to describe it is it just really sucks right now to watch all this unfold and feel completely helpless and but yeah I mean want to do so much that you can't yeah I mean it's <clears throat> it's really it's really interesting because like connection has always been the answer, right? Like that has been like like you alluded to. I mean, that's been the solution for people who are struggling, who are marginalized, um, is to be connected to others and to the community um, and to a network, a support network. Um, and now those support networks are crumbling and we're telling them, to distance, um, and so what do they have to hold on to? Um, I think many of us in recovery that are privileged, you know, will log on and go to a meeting, you know, or use our smartphone and, you know, read or connect with a friend or, or message or, um, but these folks, they, they don't have that ability. <laughs> So they are al they were alone and marginalized before, and today they are pushed beyond the fringe. And it's interesting because there's some great resources out there 
um, for people who use drugs um, during COVID, um, some strategies um, from different some different organizations. Yale University had something, and the Harm Reduction Coalition had something. Um, there's a lot of great stuff out there, and you know one of the one of the things in there was about physically distancing from others. But what I'm starting to hear in the community is that. Um, people are being encouraged to form kind of tight-knit groups, like figure out who you're going to hang out with and, and, and stay, you know, and stay together um, so you can support each other, right? Because we don't want people using drugs alone. Um, we don't want people isolating. Um, that's how people die. Um, and we're trying to help people survive through this crisis, which is... Um, which is colossal, and there's no real end in sight. You know, the um, the recovery is going to be slow, um, and we don't really know what tomorrow will bring, and um, and that's hard. I think that's hard for all of us. Um, you know, I think I was critical earlier <laughs> about people with privilege, but you know, I, I think you know people with privilege can also use their privilege for a lot of good, and I think a lot of that's happening. Um, and people are coming together, and, and there is support out there. Um, it's certainly a, not as much as, you know, I think um, this population needs or deserves. It's really never enough. But the one thing I, I would say is I think this is a huge opportunity, this crisis, to make a lot of lasting changes um, and start to invest in, you know, our systems of care and public health system um, in much better ways to support people. Um, I also think people of privilege may come to some understanding through this crisis of what it feels like to be isolated and separated and lose your livelihood and some things that they probably never have experienced or thought would ever happen to them. Um, which is, you know, it like, it kind of, it takes that, right? It takes some dramatic event for people's eyes to open and things to change. And I'm hoping that'll happen, you know, going forward. Um, there's a lot of bad policy out there um, that hurts people. You know, I, I mean, you've heard me say this a thousand times, but our policies are, are worse than the disease. You know, they really, they do like tremendous harm and they do lasting harm. And um, we've both experienced that through, you know, our, um, our journey through, you know, professional health programs, um, in the state. Um, and so, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot of work to do. I mean, there's just so much work to do. And it's interesting because, you know, as much as our work has been derailed, it's actually been kind of catapulted and like launched into orbit. Like there's so much of it now. The need is so great. Um, and it's, and it's more critical than ever really like like it's like i don't know that's how i feel you know and it's very like it's pretty overwhelming you know i've I've been pretty overwhelmed too um and you know my recovery like i would say is you know very solid and you know grounded and i have like a lot of connections but like this feeling of isolation during this crisis is um is really unsettling to me. Like it brings me back to the feelings I had with my own like struggles with PTSD um, and and the struggles I had, you know, at the 
well, through, you know, throughout my whole struggle with substance use, you know, issues, but really, you know, at the peak of it, where I felt like really alone, really isolated, um, in a very like dark kind of hole where I was just existing. And, and sometimes it really feels like that today, which is very strange. You know, it's, it's very eerie and I don't like it. It's very uncomfortable for me. Um, I don't know. What about you, Bill? I know you've had some of these. Yeah, I mean, well, one, I mean, so yeah, at, at the beginning of all this, or right after the beginning of this, um, you know, is when I petitioned to to the state to reinstate my license early, because uh, I only I thought I only had six months to go in this program. Um, you know, so I petitioned to have my license reinstated, which was you know denied, obviously, but um, at the same time. Uh, I was really feeling the effects of stress and everything. And so after two and a half years of, you know, leading an abstinence-based recovery, uh, consulted with some addiction medicine folks and some experts and people that I really trust and made the decision to go on to, to Suboxone to start taking buprenorphine as a, as a protective mechanism. And that was about two weeks before things really got rough around here. Um, so it turns out it was a you know, a great decision um, in terms of recovery protection. Uh, but, I mean, to be completely honest for me, uh, I don't feel like my recovery is solid right now. I feel like I am in an incredibly dangerous place and with really no way to safeguard against it. Um, you know, I feel like if one more person tells me that I need to take care of myself and I need to practice self-care, I'm going to punch them in the face because I... I it's just an impossibility right now to adequately do that. You know, breathing and meditation and mindfulness and all that shit just isn't cutting it right now. I don't really have time. You know, when you're, you know, you have three young kids, they're not in school. You know, you work a tremendously stressful job. Your wife works a tremendously stressful job. And both of us deal, you know, with incredibly vulnerable populations that we have no control over policy and no control over their pain. Um, the kids are home all the time trying to manage, my wife's trying to manage working from home along with taking care of the three kids who are, you know, they demand a lot of time. And on top of this, now we have to learn in a hurry how to homeschool. So, you know, after 10, 12 hour days trying to learn how to homeschool your children, which I, I'm not qualified to do. Um, you know, in the middle of this, my five-year-old son um, really became really interested in his biological father. Uh, he, you know, he was adopted. Uh, I knew Micah's biological dad. I spent a couple years in a recovery house with him. Um, you know, and he was killed two years ago after being hit by a bus. And, you know, Micah found out about this. So at five years old... Uh, every other day he's asking, you know, why his other daddy died and why did he give him away and why didn't you want him? And, you know, every time we pass the cemetery, he's asking if that's where his other daddy is. And so all these questions are being raised, uh, you know, in the middle of all this stuff. So I think if there's like pretty much every angle that I could experience pretty heavy stress, it's coming at me right now. And, so I don't really know how to gauge my recovery. I would think I'd be lying to say that it's stable for me. And because on top of that, I work uh, regularly in the drug user community. I work in a, in a 
a geographic area where right out front there's drugs all the time. There's people that have drugs around me uh, all the time. Um, and I would say before I got on the, before I got started taking buprenorphine, uh, I was having those thoughts pretty regularly of like, boy, you know what, maybe, maybe it would be a good idea to just take the edge off today. And the beauty of being on Suboxone right now is I don't really have those thoughts. Um, it feels so much more manageable on the butte than it was before. So I don't know. It was perfect timing to do that. But I mean, that's sort of what I'm doing for my recovery and this type of stuff I talk pretty regularly about. You know, when somebody asks how you doing, I don't say okay. I'm like, no, I'm doing pretty pretty shitty, honestly. You know, but I, I'm doing what I can to, to maintain and manage those things in the midst of all this. Um, and it's fascinating too that you talk about you know, because, you know, you you have been more isolated than, than I have been. Um, but it's fascinating. I feel like I'm in one of these positions where I'm not isolated physically from people because I still go to work every day. I'm still out in the community because my job just requires that of me. But at the same time, I still do feel very alone because every single person that I interact with needs something from me. <clears throat> I mean, everybody, it's, it's always the minute I see someone, I need this, I need that, I need this, I need that. Um, and then I go home and I have three little kids, so it's the same thing with them. So there's a constant take and very little give uh, for me to fill that tank. And so I, I wrestle really hard with that. And the, you know, the organization that I work for furloughed 60% of their staff in the middle of this. And so a ton of other responsibilities fell on top of us at work, and so it's been really difficult to to do the job. I mean, what we used to do at work is we used to really pride ourselves of going above and beyond for our people um, and doing a lot of extra things for you know people who use drugs, the population that we serve. And now with these cuts, we've not only not been able to do any of the extra things that people need, um, but we've, we're struggling to provide the bare minimum. And when you're someone that deeply cares and deeply loves this population, you know, not even being able to provide a minimum standard uh, does not feel good. And as a person in recovery who's a caregiver, uh, you know, I think that those are all things that potentially could end in disaster. Um because like we talk about a million times, uh, for me, how I define recovery and how I think about recovery is about a life of purpose and, and a life of happiness. And, and, you know, what I do is what I feel like I should be doing and something that I feel very satisfied in. And lately, in the midst of COVID and the overdose crisis, I don't really have that satisfaction. Uh, I walk out every day to leave thinking I just let everybody down and I have no control over that. And that's pretty freaking difficult place to be you know as a person in recovery and someone who cares so that's sort of I guess that's where you know I'm at with all this and so, I mean it's one of those situations Sean where I just don't know a lot I have no answers to really anything uh, you know I mean all this experience that we have and all the you know we've done so much work and reading and research and we you know, we've thought and we've talked so much and we've learned so much about ourselves and learned so much about recovery and all this stuff. But at the end of it right now, I find myself being just a blank of going, shit, this is uncharted territory and I'm not really sure what I'm doing or where I'm going. And just sort of relying on 
well, people like you and friends and the minimum, the, the little safeguards that I can put in place, making sure, you know, damn sure that they're there uh, so that we can all come out of this alive. I mean, I that gets me to think of, you know, what, uh, imagine if you weren't there. I know you feel frustrated, like you're not doing enough, but imagine if you weren't there, if nobody was there, you know, and, and you do have to fill up your tank to like, I think like you, you know, and I'm like so committed, so dedicated. I want to solve everybody's problem. I want to be the helper. Um, and it's frustrating when I can't be, um, and it's devastating when I feel like I'm letting people down. Um, but the only way you can be there and be whole or partially whole is is by filling your tank up. And um, you know, self care is an awful word, but like you kind you kind of have to ask like, what do you need? And I like for people like you and for people like me, we rarely ask that, or we don't think we have the right to ask that, or um, you know, or I'm drifting away from the mic as I frequently do, um, and and Bill <laughs> directs me back into it. But um, yeah, like like we deserve it too, and we need it too. Because if not, then how can we be there for anybody else, right? And I think that goes with the physicians and nurses and any you know social workers and anybody in the helping professions. You don't um, think that's a cop-out, though? Like, I think that's bullshit. I mean, we say that, and there's truth to it, but in the midst of all this, it's it's impossible. Like, yeah, we need it, too. We need to take ourselves, but I'm not, I don't even know what the hell I need well, or how to ask for it. You're not alone in that because I don't have any yeah, answers to But, I mean, there, but there's no wiggle room to get it. Like, I can't take time off, and even taking time off, it doesn't fix anything. Right, but... <clears throat> But how do you move on? Like, how do you, like, okay, you're okay today. Well, what about tomorrow? What about a week from now? What about a month from now, right? It's like, okay, I'll deal with that when I get there. But if, like, if you do things for you and care for you, at least on some level, you have more of an opportunity to bring your best self here every day and work harder and work smarter um, and yes, you're pushing up against systems that are totally fractured. And this is, you know, a crisis of epic proportion. I mean, we, we none of us have any of the answers, right? But, um, but it's also survival. It's not just survival for the people we serve. It's survival for us. And if we're not around, they, excuse my French, but they're fucked, right? Like, well, what, what are the people that you serve going to do if, if you can't come in yeah, and, but, you're, and you're done, right? Uh, and, yeah, that door, yeah. and that door is locked because how many centers have locked their doors? How many centers that's are, the, are, are open or, but have locked their doors to people that are positive for COVID or seem to have symptoms of COVID and they don't want to take a chance, right? We know many, right? We know many, many are doing that, right? Um, to protect their own, but that leaves like a whole, like that leaves an endless sea of people that are already suffering and can barely survive. They, they're out. They're they're removed from 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 our system. They're c- 
completely disconnected and severed. Um, how do they survive, right? You need to be here, right? You need to be here. So you do need to do something for you. <laughs> like, and it might be something know, small. And maybe it's you yeah, and I having this I mean, conversation, I mean, right? Because I mean, that may be even a small like, part. Like, that, like, that's what I mean. I, I, I'm not saying get out the yoga mat and, you know, I like, I'm, I like mindfulness. I think it's good, but I haven't really been doing it lately either. You know, I, I, I've... You know, I don't feel I have the time, the energy, I, you know, it's it's almost like you get into this like negative, like cognitive, like spiral, you know, and it's you can't get out. Right. And it's, you know, I have to do like there's always something to do. There's always more to do. It does not end. Right. Even in the advocacy work I, like like that I'm doing, I could be working 24 hours a day, seven days a week you know, easily. And there would still be more. <laughs> so right. like, how do you carve out time, right, to survive, like to be, you and know, that's what I'm saying. I can't. And, and there is nowhere. Well, I know, like, I right. see you posting on Facebook. I know you're doing stuff with your kids. You're, you're doing some woodworking, like you record, you do videos. So you do, there are things that you're doing for yourself. Um, I mean, these are like, it's uncharted waters, and these are very unsettling times for all of us, and we're all doing the best we can, and it's not really good enough. Um, but I, I don't know. You know, the guy I work for, you know, he's like, you got to be like, like, give yourself a break. Like, be gentle on yourself, you know, to yourself. Uh, for me, I'm, you know, very good at picking up the bat and, like, continuing to flog myself <laughs> no matter what. And I know you're very much like me, maybe the same. No, it's um, just this is the first time in my life where there, there just isn't a place. There is no refuge. There is no break. Yes, you know, I spend time with the kids. I've been trying to force myself to do woodworking. But the thing that, what's different about right now is that in times before I could get myself to do those things and I would, would feel some type of satisfaction and enjoyment and some type of relief. But this isn't like I'm forcing myself to do leisure things. And it's just not helping. Like the darkness and the weight just never ceases. And that's what I mean with, you know, you need to take time for yourself and you need to do this. It's just, it's not there. And I think what I'm talking about is what a lot of people are probably feeling, that we're in the middle of a pandemic. We're in the middle of this crisis. We're in the middle of an overdose crisis. And we're also people that lived in a crisis before this that we were trying to, to manage. And so this is very different. And, you know, I'm feeling the effects of that stress. And it's even trying, it's even difficult for me to put it into words of what I'm feeling. But it's, I mean, there, there just isn't any way out of this. I mean, there are, there are times in our lives where we know that we need a break and we need, you know, to take care of ourselves, whatever the fuck that means, because I don't know. But it is impossible to do that. I mean, I could do all the things on the surface that people say. You know, I could try the meditation thing and the mindfulness and the yoga, which none of that stuff has ever helped me. I've never really understood what the draw is and, and to get because that's just not for me. I mean, but there are things that I do enjoy. But what I'm finding is all the things that I do typically enjoy, it's really difficult right now to find joy. And it doesn't have the same... You know, it doesn't have that same relief. It doesn't have that same 
fun feeling like it used to. And for me, that is, I'm recognizing that as a very dangerous place to, to feel that way going, oh man, these are usually things that, that cheer me up or pick me up where I feel like I can breathe a little bit. And I don't, I find it very difficult to stop my mind from going and thinking about this and the problems that are going on. And it's just very difficult to shut it off a lot harder than it's ever been before. And even to take time off, like on the weekends when I'm home and I say, okay, today is going to be the day I'm just going to, I'm not going to look at Twitter. I'm not going to think about all these big problems. I'm just going to put it out of my head. Even if I can do that for a couple hours, it's still there when I do go back to it. Like nothing's changed. All those pressures are still there. And that makes it really, really difficult. I mean, I know you've said, and I know this too, that we're not going to fix everything. We're not going to cure everything. But even you saying, me being at work every day, that, well, what if you weren't there? You know, all these people would suffer. But the problem is that, you know, as a single person or or a member of of a small organization, I can only help so many people. And I can't help but constantly think about all the other places and all the other people that don't have help right now, all the places that have shut their doors, um, even the folks that that I do have the privilege, you know, and the you know the joy and the or the blessing, if you want to call it that, to to be around every day. You know, a lot of them are crying out for help and can't get it. I mean. I can't tell you how many people have wanted, decided, you know what, I've had enough. I got to go with an inpatient treatment. I need to get my life on track. And they go in and they can't even get an assessment done. They're turned away. You know, or we have people, you know, there's people that, you know, have been using, injecting opioids for years and are overdosing every other day and being revived by Narcan by their friends. And they're homeless and you know, pile on even more stuff, but they go to the assessment center and they say, yeah, you don't really qualify. We're, you need outpatient. Like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, these folks don't even have a house to live in. How are they going to go to outpatient every day? And people people literally walking to a door in tears saying, I need to get off the street. It's time for me to get better. And they're being turned away and they show back up. And, you know, that that's one of the driving things that keeps you going but it fills you with rage um, because it's not, the problem is this isn't just some abstract thing, you know, it's not just, yeah, the system sucks and it's always going to suck, but we'll make incremental, you know, try to make incremental improvements where we can. Uh, These are real people and they're people that I've gotten to know and I've learned their stories. I've learned, you know, all the details of their life that they share with me and I know who they are and so they're not just some abstract number on a page. Like these are real individual people and they matter and their lives matter and they're beautiful and talented and gifted and they have so much to offer the world and nobody will give them a chance even when they're saying, I want help. Can you please help me in any way? And doors being shut on them. And I guess my point of all this rambling is that for me, that is just an incredibly difficult thing to handle and a difficult thing to accept. And so trying to go home and shut all that off because Bill needs a break 
that's a difficult concept for me too because these folks don't get a break. I mean, they don't have the opportunity to shut it off. I mean, they, I mean, figuring out where to sleep for them and them going to lay down and try to get a three-hour nap. They're terrified, you know, are they going to be stabbed in their sleep? Are they going to wake up to have all their stuff stolen? Are their shoes going to be taken off their feet? Is it going to rain? You know, where am I going to go? Like, those are all concerns that they have, so they don't have the opportunity. And I'm not saying that I have the, you know, since they don't, I don't deserve it either. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying that it's very difficult for me to put that aside um, to try to settle my mind. Um, And, I mean, this is how I've always been my whole life. This has always been, I mean, it's been the greatest strength and the greatest weakness. You know what I mean? That I have a heart bigger than my head sometimes, you know, that I don't make good decisions for me. And suffer that's always been how I've been uh, and I love it and hate it at the same time but man being a father in the middle of all this uh, has really I mean it's thrown a bunch of things at me that I did not see coming you know of how to you know even even that like the kids like hearing your kids talk about the virus you know what I mean and that they're out and they're they're you know they're not it's not affecting them that deeply, but I mean, they're scared and then they worry and they get confused. And, you know, my boss, you know, Brooke, you know, got, you know, she just tested positive and my kids know, and it's upsetting for them that, you know, my boss has the virus and I don't know, it's just such a weird time to live in hearing your kids talk about like, you know, when the virus is over and we can go outside and play again with our friends, like what the hell? That's my, my son who's six today was saying, Daddy, when the virus is over, can we go here? Can we go there? And and he knows that we're at risk. He knows we can't go anywhere um, and do the th- many of the things that he wants to do now. Um, which amazing. is, it is. It's amazing that a, that, a, that a child, and he was lecturing somebody on washing their hands recently because <laughs> they had brought a box that was filled with, like, takeout food home, and he's like, aren't there germs on that box? Yeah. He's um, right. And he's right. <laughs> <laughs> um, it, these are, stri- yeah, these are, yeah. these are challenging times, yeah. I mean, and there aren't any clear answers. Um. Do you, do you think if you, if the nursing board, and this is stepping back, had given you your license, would you like to be on the front lines now? Like, is that, do, well, do you think if they reinstated your license, I mean, you know, you got, you got a, a letter tomorrow and. <laughs> well, so I mean, here's the thing, you, Sean. Uh, uh, and, and I mean, this is sort of the elitism of, of medicine, right? I am on the front lines. Right. I know you are. I'm doing exactly what I want. So no, if I had a nursing license tomorrow, nothing would change because I would not leave this job to go work as a nurse. Um, That's why I asked the question. I'm not practicing as a nurse right now, but all of my nursing knowledge and skill and expertise, all that is put into good use every day, whether or not the state of Pennsylvania wants to give me a license or not I will always continue to use that to help other people so they can you know if they don't see the value in me then they can shove it up their ass I mean to be honest um right and I mean that sincerely because I don't care you know well they say that their policies are in place to protect the public but we know that's not exactly true 
um, especially when you look at the maze of um, the uh, the gauntlet yeah. <laughs> that yeah, they want nonsense. that yeah. they want you to walk with with the you know amount of recovery. Well, and we're going to talk under, about that on another right. Episode. We're going to we'll, devote an episode to kind of break down what has been happening with that. So stay tuned. We will talk right. about it. But yeah, no, I don't. I mean, yeah, I no, I, I wouldn't work as a nurse. I mean, everything that I'm doing is exactly what I. I feel called to do and what I want to do. And I use all that skill and expertise every day to, to serve these folks in the best way that I can. Um, but this crisis got me thinking, you know, how many healthcare professionals, especially when things were, you know, at the peak in New York and, you know, certain areas, like how many, and they're desperately calling for reinforcements and people to bolster um, Unless the healthcare professionals, but not people who have used drugs in the past, we are not allowed. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> Regardless so, of how much time you've had. So, but far it really right. got me thinking: like, how many are sidelined? You know, legitimately, like, how how many are legitimately sidelined versus you know how many thousands or maybe more are mm-hmm. available but have been sidelined because of bad policy? And I would be willing to bet many, many, many. You know, yeah, I mean, could, we've been contacted by how many who have told right. us the exact we, same thing. We get daily, right. you know, emails, texts, you know, Twitter messages. I mean, yeah. we, we get an endless barrage of messages from healthcare professionals from mm-hmm. all over the country Yeah, um, that share their stories with us, which, you know. And are too scared to say anything publicly about it. Right. You know, th- they suffer in silence because yeah. speaking openly um you know, the consequences are, are big, and as yeah. we know. And it's not just losing your license. I mean, there's the the public shaming aspect. I mean, I was blown, blown away about a month ago when I was looking through the records on the State Board of Nursing, and I found uh, a scan of a letter that I wrote when I was in prison in 2011, or jail. It was in the county jail, but I wrote a letter to the Board of Nursing, and to, I mean... They had a scan of it on their site, and the tone of that letter was clearly not the man that I am today at all. Uh, reading it, it looked like a little boy who was terrified and was deeply just begging and apologetic to their parents. Um, I mean, it, 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 I looked at it, and I just I couldn't believe that that was me. I don't remember writing it, um, but... And what that, value? Well, that's what I was going to say. There's is, what business does that have on there? And well, the the what really struck me was how emotionally I felt about it and how ashamed I felt seeing that. And yeah, what does that need to be there almost ten years later? And and looking at the road that I've gone and and the amount that I've given back and how much work I've done on myself and even if you hadn't recovery, given anything back, sure. What is the value of having that letter on a professional board site? Right. Well, who does that serve? Right. Nobody. That's the only thing that serves is to shame you, yeah. stigmatize you, marginalize you, and oppress you, and discriminate against you. Absolutely. <laughs> I mean, that's what that is. Yeah. Right. And um, and that's what we do here. You know. Yeah, yeah. That, that That's. Well, that's what and, I say all the time. We we can say all day long that addiction is a disease. Uh, you know, it's not a choice, but nothing that we do, nothing we do to treat it, you know, displays that we actually believe that, especially if you are a healthcare professional in a peer 
monitoring, you know, a state board monitoring program. Uh, they, it is absolutely punitive. It's a, it's a moral issue and, and they do everything they can to shame you because you are now a bad person. Straight up. Right. I mean, you said before that it's, it's really, I, I mean, they're looking for ways to exclude you mm-hmm. from the profession. That's exactly right. Um, as opposed to finding, you know, the strengths, you know, wor- working on the weaknesses that they see and getting you back to your, you know, your profession right. and your purpose, which we all know is instrumental in bolstering your recovery. Sure. Um, and leading to success. I mean, well, that is, yeah, I mean, is SAMHSA has that, you know, yeah. out well, there. Well, not only that, Sean, I mean, the other thing is no wonder care for people who use drugs and people in recovery doesn't get better because who is who is the best at caring for people who use drugs, people in recovery who have been there? If you now remove from the pool of healthcare providers people who have lived experience because you don't allow them to work again or you shame them so much that they keep it quiet. Now you've reduced or potentially completely eliminated the possibility of you getting a nurse or a physician or a PA or some other professional who has lived and understands what you're going through in a population that's highly stigmatized, very shame-based to begin with. You've taken the 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 people who would be absolutely best and potentially life-saving to those patients, and you've removed them. And so what, you know, what has the effect of that been? That by us stigmatizing our own and removing our, our own from practice, we've now, now the only people that do care for folks, you know, are people that either don't have lived experience and because of the way that they watch, the way that we treat our own, they even have a stigmatized view of it and treat people worse because they don't understand it. I hope that makes sense. I mean, it's just this perpetual thing that, um, you mean, it just grows and grows. What's that word? Exponentially grows, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? That it makes it worse and worse for people who use drugs because of this exclusionary tactic and this shame-based tactic. And it's, it's, it needs to stop. And I mean, that's, and those that struggle and those that struggle see that. Right. And, know that that's a dangerous space. Like, I don't care how many times you read the American Society of Addiction Medicine textbook, which is a very good textbook. Um, If you, if, if you don't have lived experience, I'm sorry, you just don't understand. You will never understand to the depth that somebody who's lived it understands. Yeah, and that's not to say that they can't help. Right, I'm not, that's that. not what I'm think, saying at we all. We need both sides, but you're right. There, 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 there is a level of understanding, and a, and I hear this every day. You know, I hear this every day from people that that I get to care for in the clinic, that of just how different I am than most other people. And someone just asked yesterday, they were talking outside, and they're like, you know, why does Bill do that? Like, and the one guy goes, because, dude, he lived it. Like, he knows what it's like to be dope sick. He knows where we're coming from. And they know that you know. Yeah. It, in, in minutes, they, yeah. they know. that It's a different level of engagement, of understanding, uh, of mutual respect. Yeah. Um, and not, that, like you said, there are many addiction medicine physicians right. or primary care physicians that are specializing in addiction medicine 
they're doing an amazing job yeah. um, on, level. on many levels. But, yeah. but when you have that lived experience, it is a whole other yeah. level. And that's You're, not being valid. And it's not really being valued enough. It's not being rewarded enough. And that goes with other things. Like when you talk about criminal justice issues and people that have lived those experiences, yeah. it re- like, like it's just a, it's a whole other level of, of deep understanding um, and knowledge that has a tremendous amount of value and can do a tremendous amount of healing. Um, and you're a guide. You're a guy. You're a living, breathing example of what it can be, right? And like, I mean, for me, early in recovery, to see other people um, that have lived it and succeeded was instrumental because I, I like I didn't think it was possible. I did not think it was possible. I didn't yeah. think there was any other way to live. And how many have we lost? Oh, I mean, because of this. I mean, it's the reason yeah. that I didn't. It's the reason that really is that that ultimately is the reason why I lost my nursing license is because the only two people that knew kept telling me you can't say anything because you need to protect your license. If if I would if there would have been a non-punitive way of dealing with this, I pr- I may have asked for help, but. As I progressed further and further and further, I was so ashamed, and I knew how my colleagues treated people like me, and I didn't want to be treated that way, and so I just kind of faded away in a sense. Um, Think, I went to treatment, and I flat out asked the addiction medicine physician that was overseeing the recovery center I went to down in Florida, um, do you think I should report to the board? He said, hell no. He said, like, has anything bad happened? I was like, no, nothing bad's happened. I never had trouble at work. Right. You know, you never had legal problems. He said, hell no. He's like, you got to be out of your mind. Yeah. He's like, you know, just dive into recovery, you know, do it. He's like, you don't want any of that, right? Year and a half into recovery, I get arrested. You know, then yeah. the board reaches out to me, right? Yeah. And is like, hey, can we support you? You know, now that support, you know, looked right. like... A few random yeah, urines we, we, here we and there. We know how the PHP right. Support, right? I've seen, <laughs> right. I've seen their... Uh, right. You know, we don't need write. to go into the whole thing, but... No, we will it's eventually. Just, yeah, at yeah. some point we will. I, I keep drifting, but... <laughs> yeah. No. But, um, yeah, but, yeah, I mean... They don't. But even, like, within, you know, like our own, they're advising yeah. us, don't do it, because as soon as the cat's out of the bag... You know, yeah. you're going to get shamed. You're going to get stigmatized. Yeah. They're going to, you know, have it's you walk through this you. maze. It's going to be the costly. The financial aspect of it. Right. I mean, it's, so it's... Yeah. And, and, and even... And, and, the, and the, the, the forced, coerced recovery pathway. I mean, that's ultimately how my license got suspended because it hadn't been suspended. I got out of treatment for the first time, called them up, and I had just been discharged from a treatment center after 42 days, and I was administratively discharged because... I was an atheist, and I said, I'm not going to pray. I'm not going to hold hands and pray. I don't want to do that. And they said, well, you're toxic with your atheism. you got to get out of here, <laughs> which I couldn't understand because I was like, you know, there's a whole chapter in the big book that's devoted to a guy like me, but they booted me. But I came out thinking, okay, this whole rigorous honesty thing, you know, I'll call the Board of Nursing and self-report. And so when I called, they tried to, you know, they said, okay, you got to go into this program, but they said you need to do 90 AA meetings in 90 days followed by three a week for three years. And there was no way I was doing that because um, 
one, that pathway just didn't work for me, but I just could not do the praying God thing. And they immediately suspended my license because of that. You're non-compliant. Like they were trying to pigeonhole and force me into a recovery pathway. And they still do this. And I've, I had been fighting that up until you know, just right. a few the weeks ago when I was kicked out of the monitoring program. And the fact that it's 2020 and you've got to do 12-step and MAT is banned. Right. <laughs> I mean, yeah. w- like... We like, where are we on 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 Mars? Right. Like, like I, no, I mean, are we on, are we on the fucking moon? Sean, it's not. It's clear. It's, like, it's, it's crystal so... clear. It's crystal clear what's wrong. It's because we don't believe it's an illness. We believe it's a moral problem that only a religious solution by praying and reconciling your past and living a life of penitence. That's the only re- the only way that you can cure yourself of this evil problem. Yeah, it's a mess. I mean, it is, <laughs> it's, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I don't want to curse anymore on here, but it's yeah, we just, did that it's, well, uh, it's tired. I mean, we're recording this at 10, 10 o'clock at night after a really long week. And so, <laughs> yeah, it just, it doesn't make sense. It's, you know, we have medications for opioid use disorder, but they don't apply for physicians. You know, we know many paths to recovery works. Well, only one path for physicians, you yeah. know, we have. Um, even arbitrary uh, numbers of meetings a week and, you know, mandated Vivitrol and all sorts of things that really no other profession would support in any other way. Um, and really, there are laws against many of these things, but um, they just don't seem to apply or, or get enforced to, you know, with healthcare professionals. And it's fascinating because, I mean, you know, I like do a little work with like, you know, a lawyer, you know, support and advocacy organization. And I always say like, they're doing it better. Um, And I was on a call today about positive psychology and lawyer wellness. Um, And there was uh, one of the one of the heads of of the University of Pennsylvania's law school was on there, and the stuff he said was amazing. Um, that they're working to do and support their students and to speak openly about you know mental health issues and um, and that the the leader you know leaders need to speak openly about their struggles and their challenges, and they need to like bring people out of the shadows um, and engage with them and and show them a way that they can you know, care for themselves so they, you know, so they can be healthy for, you know, their clients and their families and all the, like stuff that you just, you rarely hear in medicine. And when you hear it, it's like, like it's, it's lip service. It's, it's Mm -hmm. just like an aside, like, um, but if you slip, if you're struggling with depression, if you're struggling with anxiety, if you're drinking too much, you know, suddenly, you are, you know, sent to the fringe, right? And you are, um, you are, you're put out to pasture. Um, and there are thousands, you know, of physicians across this country suffering, suffering with mental health issues, with suicide, with, you know, burnout, compassion fatigue, all the stuff that we talk about all the time. Um, and they're literally dying. And it's, it's going to be interesting going forward because, you know, healthcare professionals now, they are heroes. They're on the front lines. They're grinding away, you know, in, in you know, they're doing some 
very important work in very stressful con, you know conditions, frequently not you know being supported in the way they should, um, and the mental health effects um, going forward, um, I, I think are going to be quite dramatic. Um, we've well, already seen signs. I mean, um, I, 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 I hope so. I, I don't know whether it will. I mean, I, I do think it's fascinating that all of a sudden we're we're doing this. But but the thing that that I think is frustrating is, and I've said this a million times, like okay, after nine eleven, you know, we had a lot of this, you know, mental health stuff. We had a lot of debriefment stuff after plane crashes. We've always had critical incident stress debriefment things. You know, nationwide pandemic uh, that's really taxing on the system. So now we're going to dump things into mental health um, type stuff and support for people. But we've never addressed the cumulative stress of every day, the repetitive stress and repetitive horrific things that we see that we're on support, that we don't support one another. We're still missing that piece of it. We can't just look at the big events and say, we got to help now, not realizing yeah. that there's a cumulative effect, cumulative effect of functioning in a broken system. But even if the system functioned properly, Healthcare professionals, we take care of and we see the most horrific, catastrophic things, horrible things that happen to human beings every day, and we don't have any type of system in place to help us manage that. I don't even think we know how to, but we could certainly be doing a lot better. Right. And and that's what I was referring to. So, like you mentioned 9-11, was, you know, like a single traumatic event, right? It happened on that day, and yes, like for quite a bit of time, you know, after um, we saw the effects. But this is like a prolonged, this is like the day in and day out, but it's elevated, right? Um, and and so I think the impact of that is going to be huge. And we're going to need to make some serious changes and really, you know, build up our, our systems of care and support. Yeah. Um, and, you know, that, I mean, that's separate from, you know, the vulnerable populations we're yeah. talking about. No, but it's um, connected, Sean. I mean, it is all connected. I, I mean, maybe it's because you're Canadian and I'm American <laughs> that, I mean, you're, you, you might be a little more optimistic because I don't. I think, I think after this is over, we're going to very quickly forget and fall right back into it. And, you know, I think we'll be continuing to point this stuff out and continuing to discuss it because I don't think, I, I just don't think that we, we pay enough attention to it. I don't think we do enough to take care of our own because, come on, Sean, both you and I, the, the entire reason why you and I are health professionals who are in recovery and started this, both of our issues with substance use were born out of functioning under an incredibly high level of stress in, in, in situations that we were just not designed, you know, as human beings, we're, we're, not, we're not capable of handling what we've handled and you and I found solace in substances everybody finds solace in some other unhealthy way it's just ours affected us this way it's just, it's it's part of the job and we're not that unique though no of course we're not right no, and and not. and right now at every hospital in America some some yeah. some clinicians struggling right many clinicians no, are struggling absolutely and that's right. what i'm saying i mean i i mean yeah i i I hope you're right, and I hope, but I I don't. But I think I we have don't, to. I don't think people are linking it though. I don't. I don't think people, you know, I as, because again, what we just talked about about our own people don't look at you and me as. So here, look at this for example. Let me just hash this out. 
people don't look at you and I, right, the same way that they're going to look at a nurse or an ICU doc right now who's dealing with horrific stress related to COVID. They're going to see us as two very different, but we suffered from the same underlying issue. You understand what I'm saying? We're looked at as scumbag junkies that stole, you know, that didn't, you know what I mean, that that self-medicated or whatever. They're looked at as these heroes, which I'm not, I don't, I don't like the hero thing. I think it's a word that's thrown around way too much. Um, But yeah, people that, uh, I lost my train of thought, but yeah, I mean, we're looked at very differently. I mean, those folks are looked at as people who, here, you know what it is? They're looked at as victims. We're looked at as as deviants and criminals right. because of the stigma that's so much attached to drug use. Because because drug use is criminalized. Well, and that, that too. <laughs> right. But I mean, but I mean, we yeah. and I we've talked about that a lot over the you know over the episodes of of really where that stems from and and why. But all that stuff still persists today. I think one of the opportunities, one of the greatest opportunities of this of this time is that we can use what's happening now and the changes that are happening and the stories to advocate for permanent change, you know, permanent changes going forward. So it's it's really how do we do that and how do we move forward and get to a better place, right? Yeah. Um, no, I think that's... I, I think spinning exactly right. it in a positive way, sure. you know, um, it's going to take time and a lot of energy, and there's going to be more suffering. But um, I think we can find, you know, some sunshine in all of this. No, I do too, and I think that's I think that's what's what's helpful about you know, living in this particular time because you and I have talked about this for such a long time. And this, like, we started the episode with talking about, you know, how this shines a light on certain things, and this is highlighting certain issues. You know, I think these are things that we've talked about a lot. And so we're able to kind of pinpoint a lot of things in the midst of this that, you know, hopefully we can spin this or at least really use this as, as, an, as a very current real-time example of some of the things that we've talked about for a long time. That's great. I think that's probably a great place to wrap it up for yeah, tonight. I, yeah, I think And thank you all for listening and look forward to talking to you again on the next episode. Stay well. Be well, my friends. (laughs) Thank you for listening to Health Professionals in Recovery. Please visit our website at www.healthprosinrecovery.com and subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. You can also follow us on Twitter at HPIRpodcast. If you are struggling with substance use disorder and need help, please call the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration at 1-800-662-4357. Take it from us, people can and do recover.